love how the music that we sing directs us to the word that we're going to hear uh, from Matthew 16 today. If you would, turn there with me to Matthew 16 in God's Word. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 822. Matthew 16. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Michael Wilkins published a book called Following the Master. It's a comprehensive study on the theme of discipleship in Scripture. He says, A disciple of Jesus is one who has come to Him for eternal life, has claimed Him as Savior and God, and has embarked upon the life of following Him. I think that's faithful to... The scriptures. We could turn to Peter's words, for instance, in John 6, 68. To whom else shall we turn? You have the words of eternal life. The disciples don't come to Jesus for mere information or better morals. We come to Jesus for life. We could also turn to Peter's confession that we studied last week. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Disciples confess Jesus, the Savior, and God. We could also study the overarching patterns in the Gospels where disciples follow Jesus daily, or we could uh, read uh, the book of uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts together. And we will find that in the gospel we see Jesus' witness and Jesus' boldness and Jesus' sufferings and Jesus' love. And then we see those same activities continuing even after Jesus is in heaven. Only now we see them happening in his people. So followers of Jesus do embark on a life of following Jesus in speech and character and service and sacrifice. And we could go on. I think what Michael Wilkins lays out is very faithful. But today we come to a passage that gets to the heart uh, of what it means to be Jesus' disciple. At the center of Christian discipleship is the way of the cross. Losing your life for Jesus' sake. So read it with me starting... In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, verse 24 summarizes it well. And it's here that we find the imperatives of our passage. If anyone would come after me, let him, or he must, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But to understand these words, we must first grasp the context of Jesus' teaching about his own cross. So let's first see how Jesus explains the sufferings of his own mission and how Peter stumbles over it. Verse 21 starts with, from that time, meaning the time that Peter had confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. In verse 16, we reached a a turning point in Matthew's gospel. Peter accepts what the Father has revealed about Jesus. He says, you are the Christ the Son of the living God, Jesus builds His church on that confession. At the same time, Jesus told His disciples in verse 20 to tell no one that He was the Christ. Why? I mean, if Peter got it right, why forbid them from telling others? At least at that point in God's plan. Well, part of the answer comes in verses 21 to 23. Yes, Peter got Jesus' identity right. He is the Messiah. But what Peter expected for the Messiah was at best incomplete. The disciples had ideas about the Messiah. Perhaps some of their ideas grew from what the scriptures themselves had revealed. Maybe it's Daniel 7's triumphant son of man, right? Or the the righteous judge from Isaiah 11. But they lacked any place for a suffering Messiah. To their minds, no way would such a glorious king stoop so low. And Jesus doesn't want such an incomplete message spreading. He wants people following him for the right reasons. Not for temporary national interests, but for eternal life. And that's why you see him from time to time in the Gospels keeping things quiet. Or like in John 6, when the people want to come forcibly and make him king, he he withdraws. His chosen path is one of self-humbling, servanthood, sacrifice. So, there was more for them to learn. Verse 21 says, 
from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is what they must learn. This is the path the Messiah is going to take. The main verb there in verse 21 is he must. And that must is one of divine necessity. It expresses the plan of God and what Jesus submits to willingly for our salvation. God had revealed the Messiah's sufferings in the scriptures. Right? The sacrifices of old. They anticipated the shedding of blood to cover our sins. Psalm 69 anticipated a king like David who would be hated without a cause. In Psalm 22, it was another a king in David's line who would cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53 foretold the suffering servant wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Zechariah 12, God himself pierced to open up a cleansing fountain. Now many of these connections we know because the Holy Spirit granted the disciples insight to the Old Testament after Jesus was raised from the dead. And they wrote down for us the very things that Jesus had been showing them. But at this point... In history, the disciples hadn't comprehended these things. When Jesus said he must suffer and die, that wasn't something their worldview allowed. As Paul says elsewhere, the cross was a stumbling block to Jews. And that's why Peter responds the way he does. Verse 22, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He's, he's, he's unwilling to accept the way of Jesus' cross. And this same lack of understanding, we actually we see later uh, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 24, um, this is after Jesus dies. Jesus himself, after he dies and rises, right? Jesus meets the disciples on the Emmaus road, but they don't know it's Jesus. And they recount all of the events leading up to Jesus' death, right? And they say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You see, they were still not understanding that without the cross, there was no redeeming anybody. Our sin against God required a sacrifice. Someone perfect to bear our penalty. Redemption could only come by the Messiah first enduring the cross. That's where God would reveal his love by putting forth his son as a sacrifice for our sin. He must be killed in humility before he is raised in glory. But Peter stumbles over this part of Jesus' mission... And by doing so, he becomes a stumbling block here. Listen to Jesus' words in verse 23. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance or a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Yes, the same disciple 
who was blessed in verse 17 for receiving the Father's revelation. Well, now he's rebuked for rejecting the Father's revelation. Jesus was showing him the Father's revelation, the must of verse 21, and what that entailed for his mission. But it finds no reception with Peter. The rebuke is interesting. Get behind me, Satan. Now, the last time those words appear in Matthew's gospel was chapter 4, verse 10. It's a little different in English, but there he says, Be gone, Satan. Words that came after Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan offered Jesus a different way to gain the nations than through the cross. And now someone in Jesus' inner circle has embraced the same mindset. Peter's words are anti-Christ because they are anti-cross. How about us? Could we be just as vulnerable to a system of beliefs that lead us to reject a crucified Messiah? What, What about a mindset that says victory comes by retaliation? What about a mindset that says victory comes with vengeance? What about a set of beliefs that says that in order to win... Self-assertion is the way, not self-humbling. Or what about a mindset that acts like our own works will do here? There's no need for a cross. I've got this, Jesus. The truth is that we're just as vulnerable as Peter. God has revealed some amazing things to us about Jesus, and we have come to confess Him as Lord and Savior. But His path to the cross will often challenge us, will often challenge our system of beliefs. And we need to remember that we can't have the Christ without embracing His cross. And that's the backdrop here to the imperative of verse 24. Given the context of Jesus' cross, let's now see how Jesus' disciples must take up their cross. It was Peter that was rebuked in verse 23, but now Jesus broadens his, his words to all the disciples. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does Jesus mean when when he says you must deny yourself? Does he he mean uh, you should deny things like a desire for a steady job? Does he mean deny ourselves times of laughter with the kids? Does he mean a constant state of suspicion about everything you want? What if you want to spend more time in prayer? Or work harder with your hands? 
It's not ultimate self-denial. I think the context helps clarify what Jesus means. Jesus has just rebuked Peter. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then immediately Jesus follows with these words about self-denial. So denying yourself means denying the self that rejects God's ways for man's ways. Okay, it's, it's to dethrone self from governing your life, from saying, I'll follow you, Jesus, but only on these conditions. Right? I'll follow you, Jesus, but only if it's safe. I'll follow you, Jesus, but only if I get to keep my stuff. That's the self we must deny. But we also can't stop the Christian life there, can we? True self-denial will lead to a life that positively looks like Jesus taking up his cross. So what does Jesus mean, take up your cross? Again, I think the context uh, helps. And when we look at the context, the immediate context, as well as the rest of the gospel of Matthew, I think at least three aspects stand out to Jesus' call to take up our cross. The first aspect is single-minded obedience to Jesus. Single-minded obedience to Jesus. In verse 21, remember that Jesus says he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And then in verse 23, we learn this is the will of God, which Peter didn't want to accept. So Jesus intends to take up his cross, and he's doing this in obedience to the will of God, in obedience to his Father. And then in Matthew's gospel, if you just zoom out for a minute, from the temptation in the wilderness in chapter 4 all the way through Gethsemane to the cross, we see Jesus unwavering in that devotion to his Father. His prayer in Gethsemane even. Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So when Jesus calls disciples to take up their cross and follow him, so he's calling us to that same kind of single-minded obedience observed in his own cross-bearing. So we too must learn to, to, to say, not as I will. But as you will, Lord. That obedience will then lead us to a second aspect of taking up our cross. Namely, suffering in the path of love. Suffering in the path of love. Uh, In verse 21, Jesus says that he will suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed... And so when Jesus takes, says, you know, take up your cross, it's very clear what he has in view. Suffering, even if it means death. But the suffering in death is part of giving up his life for the church that he mentions back in verse 18. This suffering in death belongs to the mission that Matthew first highlighted in chapter 1, verse 21. Jesus came... To save his people from their sins. 
And so Jesus doesn't just suffer, right? He suffers to save others. He suffers in the path of love. It was love for his father and love for you that drove him to give his life. So when Jesus calls us to take up our cross, he calls us to walk the same path of love. A love that's willing to suffer and die on behalf of another. Isn't that the pattern we find throughout the New Testament? Like 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He's got love, the cross, and how that impacts us. We lay down our lives for the brothers. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? He gave himself up for her. So taking up your cross means suffering and sacrifice in the path of love. And then one final aspect is willingness to endure shameful rejection from the world. Okay, our culture has kind of candy-coated the cross. Right? The the cross wasn't a piece of jewelry you wore or a bumper sticker or wall decor. The cross meant that you were the wall decor. It was an instrument of torture and public shame. Your body hung naked. Your bowels emptied. Dogs waited for a scrap to fall. Parents turned their children's head from seeing the spectacle. To hang on a cross was for you to allow Rome to beat its chest and boast in its power over your weak and stupid religion. And that's the cross that Jesus is telling us to take up. It's not just suffering from what's common to this mortal life. It's not just suffering as a result of natural existence in a fallen world. It's not just ordinary calamity and hardship with circumstances that all people suffer, whether Christians or not. Taking up the cross means suffering rejection and shame wherever obedience to Christ and love for others demands it. Your life will look so out of step with the world because you no longer value you no longer value the same things they value and the world will hate you for it and they will shame you for it. So those are the terms of following Jesus and boy it'll shake things up in your life. If you're still living like you would have lived anyway without Jesus, you need to consider whether you're mistaking the cross for something other than what it really is. Take your relationships, for instance. The cross will lead us into some hard choices with some of the dearest people that we share life with. I mean, Jesus said back in chapter 10, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. We have members of our own church that have parents who think they're stupid for following Jesus. 
Some of you have children who mock Christianity. And in heartfelt sorrow, you've come face to face with what it means to take up your cross and stick with Jesus. Others of you see people at work who've likened the cross to divine child abuse. They view you as a bigot spreading hatred by your commitment to Christ and his morals. Or maybe it's not a matter of separation from others. Like when you take up your cross, they're they're distancing themselves from you. When we look at our relationships, maybe it's a matter of sacrifice for others. Maybe you're called to love the person at work who thinks you're a bigot and serve them. Maybe Maybe you're a parent and you've had a hard week And you want some rest. Maybe you want some time alone. But every single morning is a call to lay down your life again and again and again for the kids. Maybe you wish things were different in your marriage. When things get hard, right? The world, what do they do? They just move on to the next relationship. The world gets a pass. But to follow Jesus, to take up our cross in these relationships, means we're laying down our life again and again and again to serve our spouse. Or consider how the cross would impact your possessions. Right? Paul connects the cross to possessions in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He, he's asking the Christians to help meet some needs of, of the poor in Jerusalem. And, and he then grounds it in the humiliation of Christ's cross. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. How poor did he get? The cross, right? For your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So from the smallest of trinkets, all of a sudden, to, the, to your grocery lists, to something as big as your house, well, now it's all at Jesus' disposal for his kingdom. Why? Because of the cross and the mercy that is lavished upon us there. And the cross we've agreed to take up with him. Or consider how the cross impacts your vocations. Right? Clearly when Jesus called Peter and Andrew, James and John, right, they left their nets and followed him. They left their vocations. But not everyone had such a calling. John the Baptist told some tax collectors, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. He also told some soldiers, don't extort money from anyone by threats and be content with your wages. So it could be, it could be that Jesus is calling you to drop what you're doing now for something else, especially if your job requires you to do things contrary to the will of Christ. But most of us will be learning how the cross impacts the way you approach the job that you already have. I remember uh, Rosaria Butterfield's testimony in The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert great book, by the way, if you want to get it. She was a lesbian activist, uh, a professor at Syracuse University who specialized in queer theory. 
And then God saves her. She takes up her cross to follow Jesus. And it was anything but comfortable. But just listen to some of the things she says in relation to her vocation. She says, I had to change everything. My life, my friends, my writing, my teaching, my advising, my clothes, my speech, my thoughts. I was tenured in a field that I could no longer work in. I was writing a book that I no longer believed in. I had formerly used my classroom to advocate for gay and lesbian rights and ideas. Now I use my classroom to abandon the discipline in which I was hired to create instead courses in Christian hermeneutics. Each day brought a deluge of moral choices couched in the daily routine of a radical professor. In other words, taking up your cross can't be reduced to private prayer, Bible reading, and church on Sundays. Those are important habits. But taking up your cross affects everything in life. I'm sure we could go around the room and you could tell us stories of ways you've been called to take up your cross. Now we all experience these temptations as Christians. We know the right thing to do to follow Jesus in this instance. But there's a hundred things that look way more comfortable right now. Right? For me, it's mowing grass. Like, I drive by to a hard situation, you know, counseling or something, uh, and, and I just see the guys at the park mowing the grass. I'm like, oh, man, that looks really great right now. You know, it's... But what's the cross telling? No, the right thing to do in this moment is for me to go and minister, right? I need, I need to set what I would desire to do, which looks really comfortable... And follow Christ. So it affects everything in life. It's, it's about single-minded obedience in the path of love, even where that path may lead to shameful rejection from the world. So how has your life been rearranged by following Christ? Are, are there areas that you could think about that need to change? in order to follow him more faithfully. If you're looking for justification to stay comfortable, Jesus will thoroughly disappoint you. The cross is anything but comfortable. You will face situations where you know the path of love is going to be anything but easy. The path of love is going to mean a long and painful Hard a lot of days. And on those days, you may even question whether it's good to continue this way. It's in those moments that we start to waffle, right? Like, I don't know if this is worth it. Verses 25 to 28 exist to help you say, yes, it's worth it. He's worth it. Jesus follows his calling with several motivations. And each one begins with the word for. You can see it there in verse 25 and verse 26 and verse 27. For, for, for. The first motivation comes in verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Remember, the context is taking up your cross, giving your life. Whoever would save his life refers to the person that's unwilling to die for Jesus' sake. He considers it more valuable to protect his earthly life, what he can gain in the here and now, that he refuses to give it up. And that person will lose his life in a far greater sense. The outcome will be utter ruin. But for the person willing to die for Jesus' sake, that's the key, for Jesus' sake. He's talking about spinning ourselves for Jesus' sake, valuing Jesus more than life in this world. That person will find his life in a far greater sense. He will gain eternal life. And so motive number one is that an uncompromising loyalty to Jesus leads to true life. Don't you want true life? Unending life in God's presence? A second motive appears in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? In other words, weigh it out. Let's say you could gain the whole world. The world's wealth. The world's power. The world's comforts. Maybe it's the world's approval. It feels so good to be liked. So let's say you could gain the whole world all by denying Jesus or maybe denying those parts of Jesus that offend the world's sensibilities. Is it worth forfeiting your soul? Is 80 years of the world's approval and the world's stuff worth forfeiting an eternity with Jesus? I mean, take it from the one who was offered the whole world. That's what Satan offered our Lord in chapter 4, verse 10. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I'll give it to you if you fall down and worship me. But Jesus knew where the true joy was to be found. He knew his father was better. It was for the joy, you read it earlier, for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And it was through that cross that he won the nations. It was through that cross that he secured glory for you. It was through that cross that God then highly exalted him. So if you take up your cross to follow Jesus, Jesus will safeguard your soul. He will keep you and he will raise you and he will exalt you together with him. And having Jesus is better than gaining the whole world. That's the point. Motive number three comes in verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the point here is that Jesus will, re- Jesus will reign and eventually repay. Consider how Jesus' promise to judge would keep you persevering before enemies or authorities or other people in the world who mock you and ridicule you and can do all kinds of terrible things to you. 
I mean, how would you still follow Jesus in the face of such powerful people? By knowing that you belong to someone more powerful. Jesus is the true king. His judgment seat is greater than Caesar's or any earthly court that might threaten us. His glory is greater. His reward is richer. His victory is more certain. His kingdom lasts forever, not theirs. And so when you set that promise before you, it keeps you going. It helps you stick with Jesus instead of denying Him. Now, verse 28 does complicate the picture a little. It's a hard verse to figure out. And there are lots of interpretations out there. Uh, because if at the end of verse 28, Jesus is still talking about his final returning glory, that forces you to say that Jesus got the timing wrong. Or we got some really old disciples wandering the planet. But I don't think that's what he's saying. He does speak of his final return in verse 27. Verse 28 moves the timeline forward, though, to an event within the lifespan of some of the disciples that he's speaking with. I think the most promising options are two. He could be speaking about his resurrection and the subsequent glory. Right? That is, he will soon die and rise to victory... But his kingdom's not going to come all crashing in at once. Right? Nevertheless, some of the disciples who were standing there will get to taste that final glory when Jesus rises from the dead. And in that sense, they will be witnesses to the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And with that assurance, they will then give their lives which we see play out in the book of Acts. Or he could be speaking about what some of them will experience in the next few verses, where Peter, James, and John witness the transfiguration. So read it this way. Some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Some of you. He took Peter, James, and John, and those three disciples witnessed the glory of Jesus in the transfiguration. In fact, when Peter describes this event later in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says this, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witnesses, eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he describes the transfiguration. In other words, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 sees the transfiguration as a sign of the coming kingdom. It's like one manifestation of Jesus, the Son of Man, coming in the glory. So, either way you read it, the point seems to be the same when you take verses 27 and 28 together. 
Jesus reveals in history the power of his coming. Some of the disciples witness that power and it gives them all the assurance they need to give their lives for Jesus' sake. So whether it's the transfiguration or the resurrection, they witness the Son of Man already coming in His kingdom. They witness His power and it reassures their hearts of His final return. In other words, Jesus is worth giving everything for because He will reign and He will reward. All the sacrifices that we make will be totally worth it. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Lose your life for Jesus' sake in the path of sacrificial love. You cannot do this in your own strength. But praise God that Jesus isn't a mere example to follow. You see, he went to the cross first. And he rose from the dead. And that's where we find empowerment to take up our cross. Peter, the one he's talking to here, later in life. Right? He writes a letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. And he pulls the threads together for us like this. He says... For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's the example. That's the call to take up our cross and follow Jesus. But then Peter continues He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And listen to the reason why. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's your empowerment. So he went to the cross first for us that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So he makes, Jesus makes, taking up your cross possible because he gives you the power you need to do it. How amazing is it that the one who at first said, far be it from you, Lord, later writes a letter glorying in the power of the cross. And then he takes it up, and we see a life of faithfulness to Jesus. The Lord can do the same in your life. So pray the Lord helps us to do this this coming week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace that we witness across the pages of the New Testament in Peter's life. We thank you for the grace that we witnessed in our own lives. I pray that the cross of Jesus would empower us to take up our own cross, as Luke says, daily. Um, Give us your strength uh, this coming week 
that we may love others even when it calls us to great sacrifice. Keep us going, Lord. Keep our eyes on Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.